Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Thank you for joining us, everyone. As always, I'm Elliot with your co-host and the voice of this podcast, Mr. Neil Dennis. Uh, We have an absolutely wonderful guest today who has probably more experience and more insight into the world of zero trust than most other practitioners that we're going to be able to get access to for the foreseeable future. He is absolutely not afraid of sharing his opinion. He has his own series that you can actually catch on LinkedIn Live in most cases. If I don't mess this up, it is in the nick of time. Is that correct? Yeah, in the nick of time. That's it. Yeah, there you go. And beyond what you're doing today, your background is just absolutely astonishing. You know, I don't want to speak for you as far as where you were up until today. So with that, I'd just love if you could give us a little brief introduction into who you are, where you've been, and then we'll kind of just go at it. Yeah, of course. So I'm Nick Chillon, I'm the former chief software officer for the Air Force and Space Force. I, I came from France, as you can tell, with my French accent, moved here about 12 years ago, became a citizen about six years ago. A month after becoming a citizen, I joined DHS. I became the chief architect at DHS and special advisor for cyber. And then I became the first chief software officer for the Air Force and Space Force and leading the DevSecOps initiative for all of DoD and implementing, I guess, the largest implementation of the Zero Trust in the US government that I know of. My background is in cyber. I, I funded 12 companies in software, cyber innovation, built 187 products that we sold to 45, Fortune 500. So I guess I'm an entrepreneur now, You know, I guess a former government, a senior official, and now back on the commercial side, enjoying life again. I love how you put it that way. I've had my brief stint working with on the government contractor side. So I know how this speed of activity works over there, but I'm just kind of curious, what was your experience like just in general? We don't need to go too crazy into it? And why did you decide to pivot away from kind of the entrepreneurial world and, you know, work on the three-letter agencies? <laughs> well, it, this started when the, there was a, the ISIS attacks back in, in France. And, uh, you know, I got friends that got targeted and killed. And so that that was kind of kind of a wake-up call for me to say, hey, you know, I, I build a lot of great innovations, you know, with mobile mm-hmm. apps, you know, touch table stuff. I mean, we did a lot of Pretty cool stuff in banking, healthcare, retail, but it never, I guess, something that would be, you know, potentially life altering, you know, so I wanted to make a real difference. So I started DHS and then we, we got the, I got the opportunity to go to DOD and, and that was really a much more impactful, I guess, mission and work. I think the impact I had also in the department of defense was certainly lasting and much broader. You know, I think uh, we, we demonstrated that a small group of people can really <clears throat> make a big change in the behemoth that is the DOD. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, it's definitely at the same time, the most rewarding <clears throat> and the most frustrating experience of my life. You know, I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, when you run your own companies and you have uh, hundreds of people in 12 countries and, <clears throat> you know, it's obviously a lot of stress and, and it's your money and it's, you know, a lot of work. I think I, I took 47 days of vacation in 17 years or something like that before before the government. So clearly, you know, it's hard work, but I can tell you the stress and the kind of the mission 
of DoD was such a massive undertaking. You know, when you start touching jets and bombers and space systems and you and you have life at stake and, you know, you're starting to realize that we're not doing so good against China and that, you know, our kids may not have the best chance to win against China in 20 years. That's a pretty big wake up call. And, you know, when I started in DoD, I had no kids. And then three years after, because I had twins, ended up with three kids, all girls. And so that also changes your perception and you know, kind of put a lot more stress on getting things done, kind of uh, fighting a little bit the, the bureaucracy and the complacency that we see, you know, in some of the Pentagon leaders kind of calling China, you know, near peer adversary and diminishing some of the innovations that might be the differentiator between winning or losing the next battles. And so for me, it was, you know, very important to to show that we can move at the pace of relevance. We can be a SpaceX. We can, you know, we can change the way we do business. We can actually build software in a software defined universe that's able to move at the crazy IT pace and that we can do it, you know, with a defense industrial base and we can bring people with us and we can also bring new startups with us to get it done and grow faster, stronger together as a team and kind of raise awareness to what's so important and kind of push back on the complacency we talked about. Yeah. That is without a doubt, again, as I preface the monumental background, you know, you have basically seen and done it all. Your exposure is still evolving. And the fact that you're able to bring your own conversation out into the world today, I think is going to be incredibly beneficial. Just a shout out to obviously what you're building. So thank you. Use that as a resource. Well, you know, it's it's easier for me because, you know, when you succeeded and you made enough money, you don't have to worry about money. It's pretty easy to start saying what you want to say. You know, I understand you know, many of the great civil and military servants in the government and the Pentagon particularly don't have that luxury. And so it's, you know, it's up to people like me to be able to do it because if I don't do it, I, you know, there's not many people joining the government with that kind of already, you know, kind of money put aside. And so it's just, just the right thing to do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I don't know how long ago it started, but like with digital services, when I lived in DC, I feel like that part of the world, they were trying to build it, that fast acting startup, but Obviously, mm-hmm. being able to trickle that into other agencies is another monster in itself. Being able to recruit folks with your kind of background and bring that kind of insight, I think, is exactly the kind of steps they need a balance between. But I'm curious, you know, obviously, with the speed of government on the table, and they have hopes for adopting some sort of form of zero trust over the next two years, how, and I know there's a loaded question too, so putting that out there, how attainable do you feel that goal is, or do you feel it's a little bit too lofty? Yeah. So first we built the zero trust implementation for the Air Force and Space Force that's now used by all the DevSecOps teams. And so it's Mm -hmm. a pretty broad engagement with a lot of the top, you know, most critical DOD programs, all the way to nuclear weapons, to jets and bomber and space system. And we built it in 45 days and we built it as a real zero trust enforcement stack. That's not just using the gimmick buzzwords of some companies and really kind of bringing a a real uh, turnkey zero trust engagement. You know, I was part of the team with DHS and Google that created the kind of the Beyond Cope uh, uh, Mm -hmm. initial software defined parameter concept. And so I I know what it means, you know, because people use zero trust now to have this bloated meaning that pretty much every cyber capability would fit into, and it's just not right. You know, it's pretty well defined if you think about it. And, you know, I think that the issue I see is the first, the DODCA decided not to reuse the Air Force Space Force work, despite the fact that it's the largest implementation and most agnostic, not only cloud agnostic, but environment agnostic, able to run at the edge cloud, classified cloud, and on weapon systems, which is unheard of in the department. And so they went and awarded a contract, right, to Booz. And under the premises that, hey, you know, Booz is saying they could do it in six months and get a second option. 
right, with a stack that's again pushed pushed by a prime, where my zero trust team was comprised of eight companies that effectively were not acting as a prime. The government was a prime integrator and the one doing the architecture and and the implementation and the product owner versus you know going to a prime and tell them, hey, you just build, build me this magical you know zero trust stack. And honestly, the this definition of zero trust is very much bloated and it's just too too wide, which makes it even a bigger problem. But when you look at that engagement, right, not only it's a single prime, which was already four times more expensive than what we spent in the Air Force to do the work, but now they're saying that they're not going to meet the six months timeline and they want to extend for another 18 months, which obviously is mind boggling to me. You know, first they passed on some of the vendors that supported me in the government on that cloud native access point engagement that we did. And uh, because, they, you know, Booth said they could do it in six months. And now they're saying, well, you know, we're not going to go there because, and we're not going to recompete and we're just going to give an extension of 18 months after a failed six months engagement, which initially was like, okay, we're going to have a, a second option. But now it's looking more and more, you know, once I fit so bloated, you know, again, um, program that's managed with the wrong expectation of delivery and timing. You know, I'm all about having second option. I think the department should have a second option. It's great. But when you realize after six months that, you know, it, it's not even as good as what we built in 45 days for half, for a fourth of the money, you should probably take a step back and wonder if you should triple that amount of money and triple the time to get to a, 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 an outcome that's barely scratching the surface. It's barely doing unclassified zero trust implementation where we have now the cloud native access point running on all fabric now. So it really makes no sense, right? If time is of the essence, why don't we reuse existing mm-hmm. enterprise services already massively be used to the largest implementation of zero trust in the government? And egos or incompetence is getting in the way that the people running the show, funny enough, at DISA at the time were the same people that refused and kind of prevented me or tried to prevent me from building the zero trust stack, telling me that they didn't believe in zero trust. You know, a year or two before, not to forget, we had the zero trust stack down about, you know, about two years before they even started their MVP. So we were way ahead of the curve, but yet they refused to use it. And they were the same people telling us they don't believe in zero trust. Now they, you know, if you listen to people, they're the world expert in zero trust overnight. You know, it's just having never done it ever, which obviously experience is so essential when you're trying to bring something as complex and in, in the most complex and siloed organization on the planet, you wouldn't see anyone do that. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So quick curiosity question, and from my background perspective, you know, I've been a consultant, but I've also been on the military side of this equation back in the day before zero trust was an official designated term. Were there some key things that you saw in particular that were already part of this growth curve that you just needed to kind of etch into that you see that this is kind of missing within the Booz Allen approach for the greater side of the house? Are they trying to basically rip and replace everything and create something net new for better or for worse? And if they are, were there things that you thought maybe they could have implemented or maintained as part of that implementation without doing that kind of exhaustive ignorance, I guess, for lack of a better term? Yeah, it's definitely a different approach. First, it's very much locked into a single company, Palo Alto, but it's also mostly focused on the on some of the aspects of zero trust. And it's pretty good. I mean, I'm biased, obviously, because I have created the other stack and I think it's just not as good, but... I'm biased, you know, we'll move on, but I'm more concerned about tangible outcomes, right? If it was better, I mean, great, you know, put it in production, 
compare the outcomes, look at metrics, right? Define proper way to assess it, compare the cyber poster. I would argue that the tech stack is much more solid and less locked in, more options, more diversity of options, more control from the government standpoint, you know, piggybacking on DevSecOps, GitOps, continuous ATO. They can't even get it accredited. They can't even get it running. They can't even get it accredited, even less on the high side. So if you build something nowadays on the wrong foundation and you're not using DevSecOps, you're not using Kubernetes, you're not containerized, you're not using a service mesh, you're not doing a good job at taking care of non-person entities, which is you know a massive chunk of the zero trust engagement. What we enabled really is beyond just the people side of the house. We also enabled you know weapons to talk to each other in a JetC2 ABMS construct. We you know we, we enabled uh, a Kafka pub sub event-driven zero-trust data-centricity capability with the uh, elastic on top. And so we created stuff that really gives you a data lake with data-centricity labeling, which will let us flatten not just SecRail and Secret no phone, but also like potentially top-secret fabric all into one really, you know, kind of labeling things down to the cell level. So we really did things that could drastically improve the everyday life of the warfighter. You know, there's 58 secret well networks across the mission partners. This capability would enable to flatten all this to one. Imagine if you have a UK aircraft carrier, they often have, you know, going from the UK to Asia, they would have to swap probably five times of devices to connect to the right SecRail network. It's despicable. You know, it's so dated, it's ridiculous, you know, and not to talk about the US side of the house where you have all these combatant commands having to manage 50A networks and how to push data across the 50A and having to burn freaking DVDs, right? We brought a diode, you know, on Amazon. We, we connected Amazon Azure Backbone. We added stalling and 5G options on top. I mean, you know, we allowed dirty internet connectivity with the right crypto on top with CSF, CFSC and Type 1 crypto, federated the ICAM of NATO partners. I mean, there's they, just stuff that we would, you know, we're able to do that that would be game-changing in a situation where China decides to attack Taiwan. And yet, you know, and yet we're not going to make it the default for something that that is not even something you can even touch. You know, it's so are there differences? Sure. You know, might there be things we could learn? And that's kind of actually what I proposed. I said, hey, let's merge the teams. And instead of, you know, reinventing the wheel, let's do the Delta, right? And uh, focus on the 5% difference, right? And it's funny how how many times I see teams, uh, both on the DevSecOps side, and the zero trust side or the data fabric side, you know, walk away because of 5% of requirements missing to say, I'm going to just rebuild the whole thing all to take five years and not even get there when the 5% could have been a booster of boosting of funding to the existing team to get it done in a matter of weeks. That's sometimes it's ego. Sometimes it's silos. You know, we, we also educated and trained the material leaders and the PMs to not depend on enterprise services. There were so many people burned with Jedi. You know, I remember the Jake, the Drone AI Center telling me, no, you know, they're going to wait for Jedi and they're not going to use Cloud One, you know, which is the cloud office of the Air Force Space Force and with multiple cloud options, right? And not just one. And we streamlined the ATO of a cloud enclave in a day versus what it used to take eight months to a year, right? So they would, they would, they would say, we're going to wait for this Jedi magical solution, which never happened, right? So they lost, you know, two years and then came back and pretty much begged us to, to take them on, on, on cloud one. And, and we did it under, under a few weeks, you know, and, uh, and they wasted two years of production capability. You know, it's just, it, it just makes no sense. I mean, if you tell anyone it's common sense, I can't even explain it. You know, it, it's just what it is, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of, 
So military background, once again, so you kind of touched on a topic for me from a historical perspective, data and transition between solutions, right? It does kind of boggle my mind to think about all the work that we had to do to go from one network to another network when the solution now is pretty obvious from an interconnectivity capability to be able to transfer from one tech stack, one classification layer to another as seamless. There were some modicums of improvement there for being able to do certain data diode type things. But there was always still a layer of implicit trust that had to happen where something had to be vetted a certain way with certain things, certain efforts, all this other stuff. So the timeliness of what you were doing was always taken out in most cases. Yeah, I mean, from that productivity standpoint alone, being able to get that efficiency and layer in transition, especially on a carrier or some kind of collection unit out to sea. Yeah, I could definitely see benefits and the advantageous nature of what that brings for sure. And it's unfortunate that it's taking what it is to get there, but... Yeah. And, you know, when you think of the next worlds, right, it's going to be about timing and ability to make the right decisions and ideally augmented through AI ML capabilities that, that can effectively ingest more data than the human brain can comprehend and maybe give some insights and advising on, on you know, basic decisions. I would also argue it could have saved life. You know, we back in Afghanistan, we bombed that bus that had a bunch of kids in it and, you know, proper AI basic capabilities would have been able to analyze better the the satellite imagery to proactively see that, hey, there's kids in this, you know, are you sure that's your target, right? And, and it, you would think it's pretty basic stuff. And and yeah, we, we do a pretty good, pretty poor job at this. And, you know, it's all about giving the right tools to the leadership and to the warfighter to make the right decisions. And honestly, compounding that into a single, you know, very well secured and but well uh, built architected stack so that he can really uh, have structured and structured data augmented with AI, do pop sub events. So you could have a satellite that's taking a picture, sending an event to the stack, and then you have maybe an AI capability consuming that event and augmenting, detecting objects on that imagery and sending back another event with augmented you know, imagery with a new objects detections on top of it with coordinates and then he goes to a C2 stack that's going to consume these events and potentially make a decision to fire the tank that's being detected. And then you have a weapon targeting it. You know, it's actually pretty basic stuff. And we have, we actually demonstrated it during the ABMS on ramps and we can do this at scale, but yeah, you know, the department refused to make it the norm. You know, I thought I was the CSO for six months with the joint staff on ABMS. And I was pushing, you know, that JETC to join all the main command and control thing that's supposed to connect all the weapons and give all these options. But yet there is no no will from the leadership to start mandating things. And you wouldn't see an Amazon, right, use different pub sub and different uh, events capabilities, different, you know, these things that needs to be orchestrated, just like zero trust. The fact that you hear DISA say, hey, we're not going to, you know, do an enterprise service really for zero trust because each service can do their own thing and we're just going to federate it. Well, it defeats the point of zero trust. If you have different policy enforcement point, you're just going to trust and whitelist you know, the Navy policy enforcement point, which may or may not have the same enforcement and the same quality or capability that you have on the, on the one we use, then you're just trusting. And so how is that zero trust, right? And so it doesn't work. You can federate zero trust stacks. It's not an option. And, you know, we already did a very poor job at federating identities across Air Force, Navy, you know, Space Force, Army, and of course, Force State and Navy. And that's actually doable to federate identity. It's pretty simple to federate identity management, um, including all the way to a 5365, but yet they managed to do it in a way that doesn't work. And so you can't see, you know, calendars of people in the Navy, or you can't find them in, in the address book and it, it's just broken, you know, and 
So if they couldn't do it with basic ICAM, you know, how are they going to do this with zero trust? It's not going to happen. You know, it's actually not technically feasible. And all they say in response to that is, oh, we're going to figure it out when it's time. That's not an answer. You know, they should have mandated it. You know, I told the joint staff, the J6 CIO to, to be very flexible when it comes to a lot of different things like databases and APIs and, you know, programming languages and things. But then when it comes to identity management, when it comes to zero trust, you want to have one option and be opinionated and force it across the enterprise if you want to have a shot at being able to do a secure JADC2. Otherwise, it's going to be a debacle. It's going to actually be probably the weakest access to DoD networks. Yeah, so that kind of brings me to an anecdote from maybe eight, nine years ago, where I think zero trust as a construct done right would have maybe kept the Navy from getting popped by Iran. I don't know if you remember that or not, but... Mm-hmm. During the whole Op Abbeville and a bunch of other things, 2013, 12 through 14, and then a little bit later, you know, Iran was very hot to trot, and it was making public news a lot with what was going on. But it turned out that they had gone into the Navy unclassified solutions. I think it was originally actually through MWR service, and then mm-hmm. made through NWR back into the actual you know unclass network, and then mucked around and did what they did for whatever long, right? Um, but if we think anecdotally what Zero Trust would bring to bear, and we talk about the connectivity layer, like you mentioned, right? The speed of doing things for the warfighter, for people like myself, boots on the ground, stuff like that. But more importantly, it's that day-to-day stuff as well, just the overall integrity, right? Because the moment someone like Iran, China, Korea, whoever it is, next door neighbor who just decides he doesn't like the Marine Corps today, gets into mm-hmm. that, even a UFO, UO network, uh, you know, it calls into question everything up, Right. Um, but from mm-hmm. a zero trust echelon perspective, that would have stopped what Iran did day one. They would have gotten in yeah. through that network device, wherever it was initially, through the exploit that they leveraged, but they wouldn't have pivoted, right? And I think that's one of the key things right. I think people need to think about is long-term for the military, it's good for interconnectivity and speed of work, but it also just mitigates those low-layer, those low-hanging fruit issues that call into and question the overall integrity of the networks you're using to do what you're doing because you're not worried as worried about some non-APT sponsored group from Iran doing something bad or at least being as effective yeah. as they, right uh, you know I would actually argue it's, it's borderline criminal that the department is still not already fully implemented behind a full zero trust architecture I think you know the goal of uh, the duty CISO was to get to zero trust across DOD by 2027, which by the way, by the time that happens, which of course they're going to miss the deadline, but even if they did attain it, zero trust would probably be obsolete by then. So that tells you, you know, zero trust, I was pushing at DHS almost six years ago, all to hear, by the way, the DHS leadership that zero trust was not the right answer. And of course prevented it. And then they ended up getting the CBD in the world of the year, because that's what you do when you do a whole bunch of stupid stuff. And then, of course, now he's having his own consulting firm advising people on how to do zero trust. How does that make sense? I don't know. But uh, you tell me. But, you know, this is the kind of stuff I've seen. Right. And it's pretty senior leaderships. Right. People. And so, you know, you see the same thing with duty CISO and career bureaucrats. Right. That, you know, effectively are now embracing it six, seven years too late with timelines that are completely unacceptable. You know, 2027 is five years. You know, we've done a massive list in 45 days. After a year, we had countless programs already on, on the CNAP. And that's a good example that is it is doable to, to move at the right velocity. And we demonstrated that, you know, that a small group of people can 
kind of kind of move that behemoth of DOD, right? But it's just it's just disappointing to when a leader has already started with the, the skewed timeline, then of course the rest of the food chain is just gonna have that complacency of lack of urgency instead of you know being motivated to get it done. If you start the engagement by saying, hey, you know, we have until 2027. You know, they first they know that by 2027, the guy is going to be gone. You know, no one is going to be there to enforce it. But then also, you know, uh, that gives them way too much time. And then there's a la- lack of urgency for MVPs. And then you see what you see with booze, right? With a six-month pilot that turns into a two-year nonsense and no recompeting the work either. You know, how is that fair to the people, to the company that lost the bid because they said, you know, the timeline wouldn't be achievable. No, you're admitting it's not achievable, but you're not recompeting the work. How does that make any sense? I don't know. Yeah. I think that echoes my personal frustrations. One of the many reasons why I'm no longer on that side of the fence. I left the classified world about six years ago, seven years ago, give or take Mm -hmm. a few. A lot of little things, but the biggest thing was obviously that bureaucracy layer. And I worked at Booz Allen. Booz Allen is part and parcel one of the reasons why I have the skill sets I have today to do the things I do outside of the Marine Corps and everything else. But that being said... I was always fortunate enough to work on these very smaller, minimal projects, 30, 40 people contracting out, whatever, small scale things. I did work at F Cyber 24th when it was still the 24th. And there was some projects to do some gateway re-engineering and rejiggering to kind of consolidate gateways, right? To go from back then, I don't know the numbers, but a large number to a lot less and try to consolidate security entry points for better monitoring, log management, all that fun stuff. The only thing that happened well, in my opinion, similar to what you're talking about, Booze wasn't the one doing it. It was the actual 24th was doing the project themselves and then obviously putting butts and seats to help with it like myself. So it was a direct military engagement. They went direct to vendors to solicit for inputs, all this other fun stuff. Uh, Same thing happened. It was supposed to be about a six-ish month, four to six month transition from old stack to new stack, shut things down, get there. They got a little happy with some vendors and the vendors talked them into what ended up being about a two-year rollout when everybody sitting in the office was like, no, if you just give us the equipment, I guarantee you we can do this in probably two to three months. But the bureaucracy behind it is what slowed everything down. And that was one of the big deciding factors for me to finally step off. It's a government beast. We get people like yourself that understand that this is a 45 day or even a three to four month project. But then the lobbyists come in and say, no, this is a two to six year project. And look at the billions Mm -hmm. of dollars extra we're going to give you for doing this. Probably going a little tangential on my my side no, here. but I'm not even blaming Booz. You know, I think uh, the real blame is at the government level, right? Booz is just exploiting the system. And honestly, they probably won't put the team A on the project because of the fact that they feel like they can get away with team F. And so then you only get the results you get. You know, when I led the government, you know, I had, you know, with Platform One and the DevSecOps team, we had the 37 companies on contract, no prime, right? The government was integrator. I had uh, government people for each value stream. And no single company was in charge of a single value stream. It was always a mixed team of different co- companies, which is pretty cool. It's actually the way to do business. And of course, we had a process to have key positions, you know, with interviews with me and the team to make sure the contractors would not swap people without approval. And so we would have the right kind of talent, you know, in that team with, uh, I think, 280 contract. And so I, I was doing the interviews and things like that. And the minute I left, I can tell you that they swapped the talent uh, like nothing else. And, you know, there was no, no one in the government to, to compare if, if the new people were better or not than the existing team. And, and that's what happens, right? That's, that's where, you know, training and kind of the, that, that's why I'm, I'm spending so much time on LinkedIn and things, you know, create videos and content to educate people because you always go back to learning and 
and you know, with a crazy pace of IT, if you don't spend an hour a day to, to learn and, and you, you know, not only you're behind, you have to catch up, but then you have to keep up. And so I always tell people like invest in yourself, whether the company or the agency is giving you time to learn is irrelevant. I mean, for sure, I recommend, you know, I was giving an hour a day to my people to learn, but I recommend salary, you know, agencies to at least give 30 minutes, but, and whether it's a contractor or not, doesn't matter. You know, people say, oh, you know, we're paying these contractors. They should already be good. But the fact is you also don't want them to leave your program. You want them to stay. So you have a good retention of information and you have the right, you know, team structure. So you want to retain people. But at the same time, you don't want to invest in them, right? So that reminds me of this meme, right? Where the CFO say, what if we invest in these people and they end up leaving somewhere else? And then the CEO says, well, what, what if we don't and they stay, right? Because those people are going to become pretty obsolete pretty fast. Uh, and so investing in people, regardless of the contract status and where they're coming from is so important. And I couldn't really find unbiased content, you know, because you, you look at Amazon and Google and all these providers have a lot of learning platforms and then you have the Udemy and all these uh, platforms with a lot of content, pretty cheap or, you know, pretty basic or, you know, there is not a lot of thought in some of these training. There is not a lot of content designed for managers and non-technical people as to why all this matters, you know, why to pay attention to DevSecOps, digital transformation, all the cyber principles. How do you explain it to people so they understand more than the buzzwords? You know, I did a pretty good job at doing this. And now I hear, you know, the Secretary of the Air Force and others, you know, use the term container and things where, you know, uh, and it's not, you know, talking about shipping containers anymore, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's pretty cool stuff, but it's all about education and learning and training. And we need, you know, that's why I've been building a lot of this content on, on LinkedIn and stuff, because I feel like, okay, you know, we need to have people in the government that can understand the stuff. So at least we're buying the right things, the right way with the right contract vehicles, the right process, but also the right enforcement and the right due diligence and the right understanding of velocity and results and things like that. So on the note, aside from your podcast, your presentations, if there was one thing to get someone started day one, what would that recommendation be? You know, what book, what construct, what vocabulary term to learn? to get them even, down into the rabbit hole. Yeah, even frameworks like what NIST has put out for comment, any of those kind of activities, especially in the zero trust world, away from probably the vendor's definitions and concepts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, NIST is doing a great job and I love a lot of friends at NIST and I love them all, but all of the publications are complex and abstracted and you know, it, it's very tough to really come to conclusions after reading a lot of these and it's, it's a lot of content, it's a lot to understand and so I don't think uh, anyone would really be able to succeed pretty fast starting there. You know, I think first day is a good step back on like basic understanding of agile. I, I would argue most of the government still does not understand agile. And to be clear, it's not stuff like safe and all these nonsensical, you know, certification, pay to play nonsense. It's not. And, you know, first I always push, you know, a couple of books, right? I think for the military side, I think clearly someone should take a look at the kill chain, right? Where... I think we explained the threat and the, you know, because you have to go back as to why all this matters and why we need to wake up and why this is important. And, you know, so I think that is so important to, to really have a good grasp of. And then of course you have the more technical stuff. I mean, you know, starting with the Phoenix, Phoenix project, right. The unicorn project, the DevOps handbook, you know, the seat at the table, right. The, these books are giving you kind of the right mindset as to how to innovate. And, you know, uh, like I said, I release a lot of videos on YouTube and, we do the show where we have guests, but then, you know, we're releasing this 45 segment course, you know, for different personas, right? For developers, ops guys, because I get like networked engineer, right? That spent 20 years in the government telling me, hey, you know, my job is getting automated. What am I going to do? 
next. And so I want to give them a path to success, by the way, with tremendous pay, right? In site, reliability engineering, you know, DevSecOps engineers and all these things. And so they, you know, I'm creating these courses where we're going to be able to take someone from there to there and, you know, partnering with the Linux Foundation to do the right certification. So they have something tangible out of it. Uh, although I'm not a big fan of certification, I think the, the Linux Foundation certifications are actually pretty hands-on and pretty good. Uh, but I'm also doing it for managers because, again, I think if you don't have the top cover, we don't have a someone that explains things. I think I did a pretty good job at this. That's why I got so much momentum in DoD. I, I did a pretty good job at explaining things to leaders in a way they actually care and understand. If you go and talk about Netflix to the leaders, they're going to say, hey, we're not a freaking video app, right? But if you go talk about SpaceX, you know, that's going to better relate. So I think, you know, how you position things, how you'd explain, what you focus on. I saw... You know, the very first the chief data officer of DOD was focused on business stuff. And I kept telling that person, hey, you know, this is not a good idea. You want to, you know, we're a mission, a weapon, you know, driven, warfighter driven organization. Uh, the business stuff is yet to support the warfighter, but it's not the, the mission. So you should really focus on data around the weapon stuff. And, and that first person refused until David Spurk really came in and took over and really focused on the weapon stuff. And so, so I did the same with DevSecOps, right? We took an F-16 jet and we put QMAs and, and Savvy Smash on the jet in 45 days on the legacy hardware. And so we demonstrated it was doable. We demonstrated you can do it on legacy. Something that used to be running, you know, ADA and C now is running, you know, potentially Java, Python and Go, you know, AIML capabilities on top, different things. You know, we want to pick the right use cases to get the momentum and get the data to back it up and get people excited and, so I think that's what we did pretty well. So that's the way, you know, people need to think about how to get started because you need to have the bottom up and the top down support, right? Ideally, right? And so you need to build that and create the momentum. And so a whole video segment that I am I'm recording now is about how to build that momentum with your leadership and all the different tricks I use to do that. And it's kind of 11 different things that I ended up listing to explain to people, here's the step-by-step you know, kind of thoughts I had when I did it to get where we, we got to pretty quick. And within a year, we had massive traction and massive support from the leadership. Nice. So I got one more thing in my mind here. You mentioned maybe 10, 15 minutes back, zero trust today, but not necessarily in five years. Where do you think structurally this might go in that concept? I mean, the, the fundamentals will obviously still be there at the core, but the mm -hmm. idea should hopefully, I agree, grow beyond what it is today into something better, bigger, more capable, more timely. So where do you position that at in theory in a couple of years from now? Yeah, I think it's tough to know, but you know, I think the stuff that I see, obviously, in terms of maturity of your adoption of DevSec of Zero Trust and DevSecOps, which, you know, the fact that, for example, we built the cloud native access point on top of platform one as a DevSecOps construct to give us the continuous authority to operate so we can release multiple times a day. All these are foundational enablers to move at the pace of relevance. And the fact that this side is not doing this by definition is already bound to fail because you can't deliver fast enough and you're just getting behind. It just doesn't work, which is why they're not going to meet the timelines, right? You have to do it under the right constraints and the right setup and the right foundation, which is not the case in their case. I, you know, I, it took me a little bit more time to set up the foundation, but once you have the right foundation, just like a house, right? You don't want to build it on the wrong footprint. I think data centricity is going to become kind of the real maturity. You know, what we did where we built a policy enforcement point that's agnostic and not acting as a proxy, but more as a reverse proxy. So effectively, tools like Kafka and Elastic would have pre-hook and post-hook 
to go query the policy enforcement point, which is a, a abstracted policy as code stack that's effectively separated and decoupled. So data owner can effectively write the policies both for assigning labels to data down to the cell level, but then also to assign which user get access to what label under what condition, and not just based on the user identity and the role, but also based on the device being used. So if I use a government device versus a personal device, maybe time of the day, geofencing, so different kind of rules to be able to enforce the assignment in runtime of labels. So if I use a different device, I don't get access to the same kind of information. And so really getting to that, you know, chrome jewel of, of data centricity, the way we built it, hopefully across enterprises. And that's what I'm helping a lot of banks and healthcare companies reach out to me and be like, oh, how do we do this, right? And it's all based on open source tools and is, you know, and it's the glue code to put it together is kind of the complexity. So looking at how do we open source that or how do we streamline that that deployment process to, to create this kind of data fabric that can that can act as that integration point. But, you know, the key on the policy enforcement point, a lot of people end up using a proxy which now, if you have a proxy between your Kafka and your app or whatever connector, then the native connector of Kafka and there's 120 connectors of Kafka with legacy things and new things. Now you can't use the connector because the connector is built to talk directly to Kafka, not to your proxy. And so people that do it as a proxy, that's very short-sighted and kind of a broken architecture. And it's, it's, it's creating snowflakes. It's creating also bottlenecks and, and massive lock-in in, in terms of vendor lock And so... We did it as a reverse proxy and we did it as a hook. And so Kafka would query the policy enforcement point. So you could still talk directly to Kafka, but it would doing the pre and post enforcement to also filter down the data. If you have a PII or maybe a secret well to Germany, secret well to France, secret well, secret no phone cell, maybe the what is, you know, a secret well and the who is the SSCI, right? In the same database, same table, but it's done to the cell level. And so the query would filter filter out those cells through the policy enforcement point enforcement and it's policy as code and it's all managing the Git repo and all scalable and you know the change management enforcement is done through merge request and all the good stuff and so you remove all the bottlenecks and more importantly you empower the data owner down to the data owner to to write these policies through a nice UI so they don't have to know code and stuff right so all these stuff that we've been building with Open Policy Agent and all the community with CNCF and you know, and Envoy as a reverse proxy, you know, and, and Istio as a service mesh, all this stuff is a massive enabler for company, but, you know, the learning to get there and first even understand what I just said beyond my French accent, but just like really understand it, right. In terms of what it really means and why it matters. I would argue most people don't even know why, what I said matters. If you don't know what it matters then you don't have the maturity of the tech enough yet to see what's coming next and why it's going to become a problem if you don't do it and it's going to slow down your adoption, it's going to slow down your integrations because you're creating these proxy snowflakes that now people have to create connectors to instead of just using the native open source connectors. It's just simple things like that can drastically make a massive difference in your execution. And that's why you see teams, for example, spend, you know, when it comes to ICAM in this, the first two years is being focused on only 20 applications from the controller office because of compliance requirements. But if they had used a more traditional approach, which they did a pretty, for one program, they did a pretty good job with this side, just very slow because they don't use DevSecOps. So it's always, okay, you don't have the foundation to move fast, right? So I actually proposed to them at no cost to move them to uh, uh, to the DevSecOps platform one uh, stack so they could actually 
you know, have a conscious ATO and be able to have a CICD pipeline and all the good stuff, which they refused, of course. But, you know, you, you would think if you start making snowflakes, now applications trying to connect to the ICAM stack have to create these snowflakes integration rather than just using what everybody else is doing. And it just slows down the integration aspect and scale aspect of all that stuff. You know, it's just, you know, we talk about culture. Culture is hard, but the fact is tech is so difficult that it makes culture harder because people are afraid of failing and are afraid of making the wrong decisions. And so you end up, you know, having the fact that because the technology changed so fast and it's so difficult, that makes it so the culture and the fear and the adoption of that change in your brain is even harder. So people that say, you know, uh, tech is easy and culture is hard are completely wrong. I can tell you the tech is hard, the culture is hard, one. But if you have great tech, culture is easier, okay? But if you dismiss the tech and you just say it's a culture problem, usually a sign you're not very technical and you just, you know, don't even understand the technical problems to facilitate that adoption. So to make it that the culture gets easier over time by streamlining these enterprise services, right? So that's the way I think about it. I think that's a great spot right there. You know, the more you can bring to bear the right stack, the more you're able to let people be people in the solution and do the job that they want to do and need to do makes it more timely, more relevant. And you hopefully, and like you mentioned, your friend who's being automated out, but he's looking for a next echelon. That should be the goal, in my opinion, of most of the things you do in the security stack is to find the person who's down here, give them an opportunity to be mm-hmm. here and let a machine do this stuff. Uh, no matter which way, aspect, whether you agree or not that, uh, you know, things are going to get automated, it's going to get automated regardless. So it's not like they want, they need your approval to do it. So you can put your hand in the sand and hope for the best, but it's going to happen anyways. Just like drivers, you know, you look at taxi yeah. drivers, you got truck drivers. The fact is whether or not we like it, I can tell you 10 years from now, a lot of it is going to be fully automated. We see it already happening with self-driving and truck self-driving. You know, we can pretend it's not going to happen and complain all day long, but the fact is it's going to happen anyways. Exactly. Exactly. Elliot? Yeah. All right. So to pull us a little bit out of the deep end, obviously we went really deep into it, but I think for providing context into what you have done in the past and where you're basically educating people today, this is like the most behemoth use case for adopting zero trust and functional elements and cultural elements that lead up to it. So I think providing that context over to the private sector Uh, And I think we'll just kind of get closer towards the end of the conversation. And obviously we'll continue it on and point people over towards your courses. But for folks who are interested in Zero Trust tomorrow, what is that as far as the journey go? Is it looking into existing frameworks? Is it chatting with organizations who might have experienced? What does a day one entry point look like for any kind of organization? Yeah, I made an eight minutes, I think, video on YouTube about Zero Trust. I'm not mm-hmm. pushing my content, but the fact is, if I did it, it's because I couldn't find anything better, okay? That's right. I might be biased, so, but the fact <laughs> is, I did that. But then I, when you look at the publication we posted mm-hmm. on the Cloud Native Access Point online, so if you look for DoD Cloud Native Access Point, you're going to find the whole architecture of Zero Trust and how we are we architected it. We have a whole hour video on it also. So I, I tried to really make all this content widely available. You're not going to find a place, I, I know of at least, where you can mm-hmm. just go and find this stuff. You're going to find companies, like you said, are pushing their own stuff. The difference with my content, first, you know, the video is on YouTube and free. But two, I'm not pushing a product. You know, I'm not pushing a company right. implementation. I'm not pushing one cloud provider. It's very abstracted, very agnostic. So I would argue, I guess it's less biased, right? But I don't think you would find what you want, other than if you're okay going to a Palo Alto or, or Zscatter or AppGate or whatever, or Google, or, you know, 
and they all have their own sauce, but it's pushing, you know, their own products, right? So take it with a grain of salt, I guess. Absolutely. Now, I think we're kind of getting close to the end of this, but I think, you know, the best thing that we're going to be able to do is obviously point people towards content that you've already produced. You've had a lot of fantastic conversations with people who are relevant to this space. But at the end of the day, Zero Trust, we just want to reiterate, is not technology. And I think we've definitely hit home on that in this conversation. But, you know, Again, thank you so much for your insight and your conversation. Again, I don't think that we will find people with this level of exposure and being able to navigate through some of the complications that come through a behemoth adoption as this. <laughs> so thank you so much for that insight. We really appreciate you sharing your experience with us. Nicholas, it's been no, a thanks pleasure for going me. back and forth, sir. Thank you again. No, of course, anytime. Happy to come back one day. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.